Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. Today we're going to talk about a moment in Canadian diplomacy, a turning point really, when foreign policy was seriously challenged. I'm talking about the 1960s, when Canada asserted new energies with regards to the United States and then had to deal with something that was really new, the reality of Quebec's wish to be more effectively and actively involved internationally and the consequence of that need on Canadian policy. It's a story that's been told before, but with me today is a young historian who has taken an entirely new take on it. His name is Brendan Kelly. He's a junior fellow at the Bill Graham Centre for Contemporary International History at the University of Toronto, and he has a new book out called The Good Fight, Marcel Cadieux and Canadian Diplomacy. It's published by the University of British Columbia Press. Brendan Kelly, welcome to the mic. Thanks, Patrice. Happy to be here. I want you to take me to a special moment. Today, you're the witness to yesterday. The moment is the evening of Monday, July 24th, 1967. What happened to Marcel Cadieux? Well, uh, on the evening of July 24th, 1967, Marcel Cadieux was at his cottage in the Gatineau, so about 90 kilometers uh, north of Ottawa, and he was fishing alone out on the lake. Then suddenly, a, be- uh, a bell rang out. And in the Kedzir household, that could mean one of two things, either that it was dinner time or that there was an emergency. And in this case, it was an emergency. Uh, when Kedzir docked his boat, his wife, who had rung the bell, greeted him, and she gave him the news. French President Charles de Gaulle had shouted Vive le Québec libre from the balcony of Montreal City Hall. And as I argue in my book, the ringing of the bell was hugely symbolic. Uh, since 1964, as Deputy Minister of External Affairs, Kedzir had been consistently sounding the alarm about General de Gaulle's intentions vis-à-vis Quebec. He was, only, he was one of only a few people to see from the start what Gaullist France was up to. Who was Marcel Kedzir? Let's, let's go back to the beginning. Who is this guy? Good question. So Marcel Kedzir was born in Montreal in 1915, and he's the son of a postman. So he's from the working class, and that's important because it meant that Kedzir knew that nothing in life would come easy. So from the start, he has a chip on his shoulder. That made him a fighter. Uh, In many ways, Kedzir's upbringing in Quebec in the 1920s and 1930s is conventional. He studies at a classical college. He earns a law degree from the Université de Montréal. uh, And there he imbibes the strong French-Canadian nationalism of the period. Like other students raised on horror stories of the conscription crisis of 1917, he saw war clouds gathering over Europe and worried what that meant for Canada. But then he does something totally unconventional. He joins Canada's Department of External Affairs in 1941. His father is furious. You know, he wanted Marcel to be a lawyer in Montreal, not work for Les Anglais, the English, in Ottawa. And so, as he says in one heated argument to Marcel, having a son in Ottawa is like having a daughter who is a prostitute. <laughs> Good Lord. And Kedzir's early years in Ottawa were hard. Remember, this is decades before official bilingualism. And so, as a French-Canadian with limited English, he struggles. Uh, you know, people remember seeing a large French-English dictionary on his desk, you know, sitting conspicuously there. He was always consulting it. Uh, really early on, Ottawa for Kedzir has only one redeeming quality, and it's the Saturday train to Montreal. Ottawa is an English town. I mean, the government is an English town. This guy didn't have much English in his background at all. I mean, did he speak English at all? He did speak English and he could write it, but it, it didn't come naturally for him. A little bit like André Laurendeau, the, the, who goes on to be a very prominent journalist, who already is a prominent journalist. I don't think Marseille Kedzir really had met any 
English Canadians in Montreal, because really back then, Montreal is two solitudes. In a way, of course, it isn't today. So why would this man, this is the external affairs, the Department of External Affairs is the department of O.D. Skelton. Mm-hmm. O.D. Skelton doesn't speak French. Yeah. Uh, this is, why, why, would, why would he pick this place? You know, Canadian foreign policy after the Second World War is exciting. You know, you ask yourself, what is it like to work in the DEA in this period? Yes, it's in English. Uh, But there are so many possibilities for young diplomats. And in 2015, Justin Trudeau uh, famously said uh, that Canada was back on the world stage. If Louis Saint-Laurent at the time would have given a similar speech, he would have said that Canada had arrived for the first time on the world stage because after the Second World War, which was really a watershed for Canada, there was no going back to the the timid, the quasi-isolationist foreign policy of the 1930s. And so the DEA is an exciting place to be. Canada joins uh, the United Nations. It's a founding member of NATO. It starts sending development assistance abroad. It fights in the Korean War. It helps uh, admit 16 new countries to the UN. Uh, Of course, most famously, Lester Pearson in 1956 helps defuse the Suez Crisis. So this is an exciting time to be a Canadian. And he wanted to be a part of that. Exactly. What kind of person is this? You quote quote in your book Alan Gottlieb, who calls him a complete... Complete ferocious peasant. <laughs> what, what kind of man is Marcel Cadieux? It's, it's a striking line from Ambassador Gottlieb, and I think what he's getting at is that Marcel Cadieux is rough and tumble. Uh, he's he's an earthy man. He, he has, uh, in some ways, almost sometimes a crude sense of humor. He's not your typical diplomat. You know, uh, Alan Gottlieb once said that to be in the presence of Jules Léger, uh, Cadieux's contemporary colleague in the Foreign Service, it was like being in the presence of the Pope. Léger was elegant, you know, he was refined. Kedzir, it's not that he's unrefined, but he's earthy, and he likes to bang his fist on the table and raise his voice in argument. And these are very undiplomatic qualities. He's argumentative. Oh, extremely argumentative. But that's a good quality, and a guy like uh, Norman Robertson appreciates that. Yes, exactly. So the, the Kedzir-Robertson relationship is really interesting. And when Kedzir joins the department in 1941, Robertson is its undersecretary or deputy minister. And Kedzir comes to his attention as a junior diplomat because he's taking it upon himself to write Robertson memos, uh, warning about the situation in Quebec during the war and a repeat potentially of, of what happened in 1917. And so immediately Robertson uh, sees Kedzir. And Kedzir is, you know, the most junior of junior diplomats in 1941. Fast forward to 1960, Robertson is undersecretary again, and things are changing in Quebec. Maurice Duplessis is dead. Uh, the liberals have come to power for the first time since the Second World War, and the quiet revolution is underway. You know, the founding of the FLQ is only a couple years off and the setting off of bombs to achieve Quebec independence. And so Robertson sees that he needs a French-Canadian as deputy undersecretary, a French-Canadian at his side, because he knows the importance of national unity. And he will help to promote uh, Marcel Cadieux when... when Push comes to shove, and Kedzu is a candidate to be to assume the top job. Uh, Norman Robertson will support him. Yes, exactly. So it, it's a striking story because Robertson uh, is dying of cancer, and he has a lung removed, and he's literally in hospital in 1964 in the ICU unit, and he engineers the succession because he sends his wife uh, to tell Pearson, "I insist that Marcel Kedzu succeed me." You know, uh, things in Quebec are so grim. 
that it's imperative that a French Canadian become under Secretary of, St- under Secretary of State for External Affairs. It's a remarkable, dare I call it a small politics, but for a secretary, the Undersecretary for External Affairs to make a strong recommendation like that is is remarkable. And of mm-hmm. course, Lester Pearson will take him up. Um, exactly. He will name Marcel Cadieux as to the top job in external affairs. Mm-hmm. What's the relationship between Pearson and Cadieux? And the relationship is never close. And part of the problem is that Pearson himself had been a professional diplomat in the department. But in 1948, he makes the momentous choice to resign from the department and join the Liberal government. And to a professional diplomat like Kedzir, that was almost treason. Oh, to Kedzir, really? <laughs> yeah. The foreign service to Kedzir was almost a religious order. Mm. Once you had taken sacred vows, they were not to be broken. And Pearson had broken them. And there was another problem with Pearson in that Pearson was as English as Kedzir was French. Remember, Pearson was born in Ontario. He was the son of a Methodist minister. Uh, his diplomatic career had been spent in Washington and London. He couldn't speak French. And so Kedzir looks at this and it worries him because Pearson is completely unversed in Quebec's society, culture, politics. And this is the period of the Quiet Revolution, a very assertive Quebec. And you have Pearson there who who genuinely wants to solve the national unity problem. You know, he's behind the Royal Commission on bilingualism and biculturalism. Uh, He wants to revise and patriate the Constitution. He wants closer relations with France to please French Canadians. But there's always a a timidity and an uncertainty in Pearson's dealings with Quebec that worries Kedzir. Kedzir fears that Pearson is going to, on specifics, make concessions to Quebec that inadvertently will help pave the way for its independence. Let's talk a little bit more then. I mean, so Pearson, you're quite right. Um, also understands the reality of Canada and will bring in three dynamic young ministers in 1965. Mm-hmm. One of them, of course, is Pierre Trudeau, who eventually becomes prime minister in 1968. Fast forward a little bit. Fast forward a little bit. Do we? What's the what's the relationship between Trudeau and and uh, Marcel Cadieux? I mean, Marcel Cadieux is still mm-hmm. the undersecretary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the relationship once again isn't close, and it's sad in some ways because. It should have been close in the sense that they were both strong French-Canadian Federalists who believed in standing up to Quebec. But in every other way, they were completely different. Um, you know, Trudeau both hailed from Montreal, but Trudeau was from wealthy Outremont, Kedzir from working-class Hunzik. Uh, Trudeau was the son of a billionaire, or a millionaire, yeah. <laughs> pardon me, and Kedzir was the son of a postman. Uh, Trudeau was a glamorous politician. You know, he he just embodied the spirit of the 60s. Fast cars, beautiful women, flashy clothes. Kedzir, a civil servant. He's he a wore, grinder. He's a yeah, grinder. Exactly. He wore the same shirt to work every, or the same suit to work every day. Uh, he had an old-fashioned pocket watch. He's of no interest to the media. And so what you get is a clash between a, a visionary politician in Pierre Trudeau who wants radical change everywhere, including in foreign policy, and a, a principled civil servant who's trying to stand up for his department's traditional role, which is to provide the government with the best possible advice. And sometimes that means that change isn't necessary, that what we're doing is okay and we don't need radical departures. That's a message Trudeau doesn't want to hear, is it? Exactly. Trudeau wants to shake things up. He wants to shake up the bureaucracy, and nowhere is that more apparent than in foreign affairs. You know, his government from the start insists on a a severe reassessment of Canadian foreign and defense policy. Uh, They want 
want outside groups like academics to be consulted. Trudeau, you know, goes on TV and he even says the diplomatic profession, I think it's outdated. There's nothing I can get. Uh, th there's nothing I can get from a diplomatic dispatch that I can't get from a good newspaper like the New York Times. Well, you can imagine what that does for the morale of the Canadian Foreign Service. It's one of the things that... Uh it's a phrase we keep coming back to as students of foreign policy. This cruel phrase of Trudeau is about uh, about how foreign affairs, Department of External Affairs, was not doing its job in his eyes. It was not doing its job. But okay, let's let's go back. I mean, so Trudeau sets the stage, but there's a man that. Um, that uh, Kedju has to work with, and that's Paul Martin Sr. Be before uh, Trudeau comes on the stage, there's Paul Martin Sr. And there's an interesting triangle here between the Prime Minister, Lester B. Pearson, Paul Martin Sr., who has ideas of his own, and Marcel mm -hmm. Kedju. Can you describe that? Kedzie is caught in the middle between Lester Pearson and Paul Martin. Uh, they had been leadership rivals uh, in 1958. Pearson had easily bested Martin, and Martin wanted to be prime minister. You know, he didn't hide it. <laughs> he didn't hide it at all. And I think that was the problem. There's nothing wrong with being ambitious, you know, especially for a politician. Mm. But Martin was so ambitious that it seriously compromised his performance as foreign minister. And that deeply troubled Kedzir. You know, Martin was constantly demanding what he called foreign policy initiatives from his department. Give me initiatives. Give me initiatives. And, you know, he exaggerated Canada's relative international importance by the 1960s. You know, Canada's star in many ways had fallen because mm. other countries, such as in Western Europe, Japan, were recovering. And Canada wasn't, didn't have the same voice on the world stage that it once did. And so, you know, as Alan Gottlieb told me in an interview, Kedzier's protege in this period, and goes on to become ambassador later to Washington, nobody gave Martin the initiatives because you had to save Martin from himself. <laughs> He's also obsessed with publicity. Once again, that's not a péché martel, a mortal sin uh, in politics. But he is so ambitious that it leads to outright failures in terms of Vietnam, for example. He's yes. constantly demanding peace initiatives. And, you know, he doesn't seem to see that peace is beyond the Canadian government's reach. If the Americans, the North Vietnamese, the South Vietnamese can't come to the peace table and work out an agreement— What's going to bring, what, how's Canada going to bring them there? I have to say, this is one of the most gripping parts of your book, I thought. And, and when you entitle your book, The Good Fight, my goodness, I felt myself on the ropes. <laughs> I felt, I felt, uh, I felt as if I was in Kedzu's uh, skin and, and literally having to put my dukes up, battling <laughs> constantly with Martin, with, with, with the pressures of having to, but why did you call it The Good Fight? Were you thinking of that or were you thinking of other things? I called it the good fight because I was struck by how many times in Kedzir's career he had to stand up for something. And nowhere was that more apparent than in the 1960s. Mm. You know, it's hard to imagine today just how bizarre French intervention in Canadian affairs was. It's, it's the most peculiar thing when you think of it. This intervention in Canadian affairs wasn't coming from an enemy state, you know, a communist government. We had defended France twice exactly. in two world wars. Exactly. You know, this was one of Canada's so-called mother countries. It was a NATO ally. It was strange. And so Kedzir, for him, the greatest fight of his career is, as he would see it, defending Canadian unity from French intervention. And it's 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 incredible what he had to do because for so long he was a voice in the wilderness. Uh, you know, nobody really believed him. As he said, you know, they think that I see Indians, you know, natives behind every tree. You know, they think that I'm paranoid, <laughs> that I'm crazy. He even questions himself, you know, am I paranoid? Am I crazy? Could France really do this? And um, 
you know, everywhere he's trying to resist what they're doing. You know, for Expo in 67, de Gaulle comes to Quebec, and he was supposed to go to Ottawa first. You know, that's diplomatic courtesy. It's the right thing to do, the nation's capital. Instead, he comes by warship. You know, he steams up by warship, arrives in Quebec City. Kedzir is livid. As only he the says. queen could do that. Well, that's it. That's, that's one of the great quotes <laughs> in my book. Kedzir says, you know, the only person who sails up the, up the St. Lawrence in a goddamn warship <laughs> is the queen. You know, he can't believe it. But when de Gaulle says, vive le Québec libre, it provides Kedzir in a funny way with a, a bit of solace because it shows that he was right all along, that what he had seen was right, that France was essentially trying to encourage Quebec's freedom. Now, that could mean independence, it could mean an in, improved place in confederation, but it was completely inappropriate. There is a context to this, uh, and it will be fueled in part by de Gaulle's uh, declaration, but Quebec also wants a greater say in international relations. It feels as though Ottawa is not representing the French fact. There is lots of room, uh, Paul Gérin-Lajoie will mm -hmm. make that argument, there's lots of room for, for Quebec to have international relations on the issues in which it has full jurisdiction. Things like culture, well, to a certain degree, but education certainly, health care, whatever. Um, what's, I mean, because you're a French-Canadian, proud Quebecer, uh, what's his attitude? He's being torn, quite literally torn between the two parts of his soul. That's exactly it. Basically, he's asked to choose, or he's forced to choose, between his home province, as he sees it, and the country he served in, in the public service and the, and the foreign service. And the gérin Lajoie doctrine, when Kedzir first hears of it in 1965, uh, and that's, as, as you point out, the argument that Quebec uh, has the right to act abroad in areas of its constitutional jurisdiction, which, might I add, no federal government has ever accepted to this day. Mm -hmm. Kedzir is aghast when Jérôme Lajoie makes that speech in April 1965. He sees it, Kedzir that is, as contrary to both constitutional and international law, and it threatens Canadian sovereignty. You know, he, he sees it as practically a declaration of Cana uh, Quebec independence. You know, when Claude Marin, Quebec's top bureaucrat in this period, goes to Ottawa shortly after the Jérôme Lajoie doctrine is, uh, is announced, Kedzir meets him, and he raises his voice so loudly that the doors to their meeting room have to be shut. He's absolutely furious, because you know, this would lead, as he saw it, and I think he was right, to the balkanization of Canada. The idea that Canadian sovereignty abroad was divisible. You know, that's a major problem. It's a problem for him, but in practical reality, I mean, it's, it's very difficult for, for Quebec uh, to, to limit itself. It just didn't trust Ottawa. It didn't feel as though mm -hmm. it's, and still does not feel as though, mm -hmm. uh, its presence internationally can be felt, can be appreciated uh, through the, um, the gestures of Ottawa, that, they, that, that Ottawa will never give Quebec its due internationally, and that as a francophone uh, power, uh, quote-unquote, uh, in, in international society, it certainly has a role to play. It's interesting to see Kedzur at the very beginning of these rumblings trying to negotiate mm -hmm. uh, the two masters. And, and that's what I think it brings a, a poignancy to your book. And I think that uh, it's a story that's, that's rather, that is unique. Mm -hmm. He was, Kedzur not, Kedzur was not the first undersecretary. Uh, of French background, you mean? Yes. Uh, no, you're you're entirely right. Jules Léger. Was Jules Léger was French the first Canadian one. undersecretary in the 50s, yeah. I have to ask you the typical Champlain Society <laughs> question, which is about your sources. And one of the revelations is this diary. Mm. <laughs> tell me, tell us about Marcel Cadieux's diary. Marcel Cadieux's diary is just, I think, one of the most remarkable documents in Canadian political and diplomatic history. Um, you know, 
he keeps it from 1964 to 1975. And it's, you know, it provides this fascinating behind-the-scenes account of both the Pearson and Trudeau governments and what life was like in Washington during as an ambassador, because he goes there in 1970, under the presidency of Richard Nixon. But the diary is special because it's so entertaining. Why is it entertaining? Because of Kedzir's personality. Right. He was not a stereotypical diplomat. Um, you know, as I said, he liked to bang his fist on the desk. Outspoken as he was, though, Marcel Kedzir still had to observe certain proprieties to be a, a civil servant. But what's funny and interesting is that in his diary, he doesn't have to observe those rules. Mm -hmm. You know, he can vent his anger and fully express his views on the great questions of the day uncensored. You know, I interviewed his his secretary. Oh, really? And, and yeah, and she told me, you know, he, he dictated his diary to her. And she told me that when he was upset or angry, he would fly at her like a bat out of hell. <laughs> That's a direct quote. And, you know, you can see it in the diary because, it, you know, there are entries that go on for 20 typed pages. 20 type pages in a single day. And, you know, where else could Kedzir get away with, you know, calling his opponents in Quebec fanatics, uh, mm. the French pigs, or de Gaulle, <laughs> an old and rancorous man. And so his diary, as I argue, is really an escape valve. You know, being undersecretary, deputy minister of foreign affairs, is one of the most important and high-pressured jobs mm. in Ottawa. And so the diary lets him blow off steam. Did he... Did he uh, reveal himself on a daily basis or? It's not daily. Uh, so there are times where the diary will skip ahead two weeks. Okay. And in, in one place in the 60s, it even goes ahead by years. So he just stops writing. I don't know why. It's not clear. But boy, when he starts writing and if things are happening, such as de Gaulle's visit to Canada or the Trudeau government coming in in 1968, the entries really heat up. And, you know, there are almost daily entries and long ones. And uh, it's just it's, it's the most incredible thing to read. They it are, goes on for hundreds of pages. They are written in French? Uh, almost all of them. In fact, all of them in the 60s are written in French, and there's maybe one in English from the 70s. The rest are in French, so they're entirely dictated in French. And entirely fascinating, and you make excellent <laughs> use of it. It's a, as you say, it's a real treasure. It was under it was under wraps for a long time. In a lot of ways, it was. So it was really under wraps. There were, I think, there were rumors about it. For example, Kedzir's closest friends, such as his best friend Paul Tremblay, um, a member of the diplomatic service, same year, uh, knew about it. Alan Gottlieb, his protege, knew about it. Pauline Sabourin, his secretary, knew about it. But really, uh, very few other people knew about it. Definitely Paul Martin didn't know about it. Pierre Trudeau <laughs> didn't know about it. So, you know, Kedzir wasn't advertising this. At the top of each page, it was marked, uh, they were marked, personnel et secret, personal and secret. And they were kept in a filing cabinet, which was locked with a key. And so, no, it, they, it doesn't really become available and come to our attention as scholars until the 90s, when people start going through Kedzir's private papers at the archives. When does he retire? He retires in 1981. And uh, what happens to him at that point? Basically, uh, it's rather sad. He had worked for 40 years in the public service, and in 1981 he retires, and shortly after that he dies of a heart attack nice on vacation in Florida. Stepping back, mm -hmm. putting some perspective on it, uh, so he died 40 years ago, almost 40 years ago. What's your sense of his historical importance? I think three things come to mind. and First of all, 
he's important because he had both convictions and the courage to fight for them. And so those three convictions, as I argue in my book, his strong anti-communism, you know, he rejected the idea that there was a moral equivalence between the liberal democratic West and the communist world. He saw the Soviet Union, I think rightly, as the greatest threat to world peace, and he had seen firsthand how people were robbed of their liberty wherever communism held power. And so although he didn't live to see it, I think he would have felt vindicated by the joy that, you know, greets the fall of the Berlin Wall in Eastern Europe. Uh, second, his belief in the place of French Canada in the country. You know, his French-Canadian federalism is inclusive. He believes that French Canadians uh, have the right to live, to work, to prosper from coast to coast. You know, that's what leads him to Ottawa in 1941 and to champion such things as, you know, bilingualism in the public and foreign service. Um, a foreign aid program for French-speaking Africa, cultural relations programs with Francophone Europe. You know, Kedzir was one of the first people to argue that Canadian foreign policy was far too Anglo-centric mm. and that it had to take into account the one-third of the country that was French. And I think it's precisely because his, his Canadian nationalism was so broad, so inclusive, that he was so disturbed by how parochial the Quebec nationalism and separatism of the 1960s and on was, because he didn't believe that French Canadians and Quebecois should, you know, limit themselves to Quebec. They should go beyond Quebec, you know, help, uh, you know, chart the direction of the country. And finally, and I think most importantly, and it's not something I've, I've talked about yet, Kedzir believed in the, in the ideals of the civil service. So these included expertise, political neutrality, a total devotion to the interests of the state, and so for him, this was a form of patriotism. Uh, his professionalism led to friction with his political masters, you know, from Paul Martin to Pierre Trudeau. But what's important is that it reflected the entire, an entire generation of senior civil servants, what we used to call mandarins, who believed that working for the state was the highest vocation imaginable. And so, you know, having too many convictions as a diplomat can be a dangerous thing. You know, it, you're expected to kind of compromise constantly and find, you know, middle grounds. And Kedzir did do that. But he also refused to compromise on the principles that mattered most to him. And so at the end of the day, I think he succeeded not in spite of his convictions, but precisely because of them. Brendan, your your defense of this uh this this your impassioned defense of this ferocious peasant uh, <laughs> is is enlightening, and I thank you very much for coming in to talk about it. Oh, it's my pleasure, Patrice. Thanks for having me. That was Brendan Kelly, the author of The Good Fight, Marcel Kedzieu and Canadian Diplomacy, published by the University of British Columbia Press as part of its excellent CD House series on political history. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's even a place to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's history. If you like this stuff, please let people know by using whatever social media you use. It would help spread the message and we'd be really proud of your support. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Patrice Dutille. This interview was recorded in the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University on October 28, 2019 and produced by Michael Smith. Thank you, everybody, and we'll see you next time.